Welcome to Financial Foresight. This podcast was made by four fee-only CFP professionals to help consumers understand the financial industry. Let's meet your hosts. They're either naive, they're stupid, or they're lazy. You know, the other thing is, is uh, my ceiling fan just went out in my kitchen today. He is the commander in chief on this video right now. And uh, man, I am feeling controlled and empowered and safe. Don't stop for Dwight's baby. We can edit that out. (laughs) All of the podcast hosts are owners of RIAs registered in their respective home states. All commentary on this podcast represent the opinions of individuals and not their firms. All commentary is financial education, not financial advice. So let's get started. Hi, welcome to the Financial Foresight Podcast. I'm Isaiah Douglas. Today I'm joined by Dwight Detloff, Ian Bloom. Good afternoon, fellas. What's up? Good afternoon, man. Hey, it's morning my time still. Yeah, that's true. I, I need to remember that, that it's still, it's early out there in Colorado. Yeah, we got to be nice to our Colorado friends. So Ian, you talked about an article that you recently read from a fellow XYPN member. Can you share a little bit about what the article's about? Yeah, so I thought our first topic today could be focused a little bit around happiness and money. And I got inspired to talk about this because I read an article from David Ray, who's a fellow financial planner and XYPN member, about a survey he did about how much money the LGBT community thinks they need in order to be happy. And the funny part is, you know, this is just like Twitter questions, but across all of his followers, he got a a large variety of responses, everything from 120,000 a year down to, I just want to be able to pay for the basics. And then some people replied with, well, money doesn't correlate with happiness. And then he joked in the article, he's like, yeah, those are the people that already have enough money. (laughs) Um, but the the more interesting side of this is just the question of how much money do people really need to be happy and what's that answer. And so I wanted to also tie in an article from uh, the Journal of Nature and Human Behavior that was published in uh, 2018. It's called Happiness, Income Satiation and Turning Points Around the World, where they did some research on, you know, global income satiation and happiness levels based on levels of income and converted it all back into US dollars for us Americans. And basically what they found is between 60 and 75,000, you hit what's called emotional well-being, which means that you're no longer stressed out about the money and things are going pretty well, right? Um, You don't think about it on a day-to-day basis. And then 95,000 a year hits what's called income satiation, which is this idea of diminishing returns where any dollar beyond that $95,000 mark might buy you nice things or whatever, but it doesn't really make you happier. So I think it's an interesting subject to bring up and, uh, and something that I think is really fun to talk about because we're financial planners. So obviously we want to make people's finances better, but what we're hoping to do is actually just make their lives better. Um, so what are your thoughts on income and happiness and all this kind of stuff, guys? Yeah, Ian, it makes me think of going back to XYPN Live, which for those that aren't familiar is really just XY's conference each year where all the advisors that can make it show up and they bring in some great speakers, educational event, fantastic time. Uh, Dr. Elizabeth Dunn came and spoke about the five principles of happy money, which was from her book called Happy Money, oddly enough, right? But it talked about buying experiences, which I think the younger generation certainly understands a little bit more, which is taking trips or going to concerts and not, you know, material, not buying material things quite as much. Make it a treat, which is really just trying to understand if you're doing something over and over again. Let's say it's the Starbucks latte. And now all of a sudden you're not getting the same 
benefit or excitement from that purchase, you know, take it away and then bring it back and make it a treat to treat yourself if something happens and you'll really appreciate it more. And then you can repurpose that money for something else. Number three is buy time, which is pretty self-explanatory. We all know what we're good at. We all know what we aren't good at, or maybe we need to focus a little bit more on what we're not good at and, and outsource that. But really time is one of our most valuable resources. So talking about being happier is if we have more time to do what we love, spend time with our family, friends, all that good stuff, we become happier and that's a good use of money. Four, pay now, consume later. That just makes me think of prepaying for a vacation. My wife, Emily and I, when we um, you know spent more money than probably we ever have on a trip, which was for our honeymoon, and being able to go to Italy and how exciting and fun that was when we were there, not thinking about the money that we spent up front to pay for a lot of that stuff. And she talked about the psychology behind that initial, almost like ripping the bandaid off, paying for it, and then enjoying it later. And then five is investing in others. You can use that money to, to make a difference in your community, do something special for someone. I know I've personally been very blessed and fortunate with some awesome mentors in my life. Yeah, I, I've seen, I've been on the receiving end of, of people spending their money in that way. Along with that point too, Blair Duquesne put out an article, she was do she did a podcast with Brian Portney um, a few weeks back and just partly said, hey, wealth is funded contentment. So it's really in line with that. And I think there are more and more studies that are coming out saying very similar things. Maybe the numbers might be slightly different, you know, whether that's 70 or 75,000 or a hundred, but you know, it's still a lot of money, but I think at the same time, it's not probably nearly as much money as folks may think, but you know, you did, Ian, you brought up something that where people were saying, Hey, yeah, well, these are all the people with money already. I do think there's something to think about too, where it's one of those things is really hard to kind of tell people, Hey, statistically or per this study shows that you're really not going to be any happy. You know, you're not really going to be any happier. Um, sometimes people just need to see, you know, get there to see that. And I know as financial advisors, all, you know, the three of us on the call today, we see people of different, levels of wealth and probably some self-selection bias or some selection bias there where folks are um, tend to be more wealthy than not. And I'm sure that we've all worked with people, or at least I can say I've worked with people that I know that have had what most people would consider quite wealthy or rich and not be happy. So, you know, money is not going to be the only silver bullet to that. And and sometimes you kind of got to get there to realize, um, you know, the late philosopher Biggie said, more money, more problems. So just <laughs> something to think about. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, one of the other things that even though David Ray joked, these are the people who already have the money that are saying that money doesn't correlate with happiness. Right. There's also a certain percentage of that is probably people who have been told over the course of their life, money doesn't buy happiness, right? Because that we have kind of these messages that our parents or our friends or other family members teach us throughout our lives about any aspect of life, right? You develop these like heuristics, but it's really true for money because there's not a lot of, you know, conversation going on around finances in our culture. So as a result, like those those kind of stereotypes about money don't ever really change. Like they, they're almost the same generation over generation, even though they're like mathematically provably not true. Like this happiness research exists and proves that to some degree money does buy a little bit of happiness. But at the same time, people still say money doesn't buy happiness. Law of diminishing returns. Yeah, I mean, diminishing returns are kind of the right way to think about it, right? It's like you get over a certain amount of income and you can buy that new Ferrari, sure, but does the Ferrari make you happier than the Toyota Camry did? Not really. Maybe it gives you like an extra day of joy, but then you get used to it. You know, back to Elizabeth's 
Dr. Elizabeth Dunn's rule number two, which is, you know, as you start to normalize to experiences, you enjoy them less. So make it a treat. Yeah, hedonic treadmill. Um, no, and I think that's part of the thing too. Like, you know, we've talked about the fire movement, you know, the financial independence, retire early type of situation on this podcast before. And that's sort of the whole argument of you need to retire to something, not from something. And, you know, if you're sort of chasing this number so you can retire early because you hate what you're doing, well, once you kind of are the dog that catches the mail truck, now what are you going to do with it? And what are you going to do with all of this time that you've got? So you've got all the money. If you're still a miserable sack, you're not going to be, you're still going to be a miserable sack just with a million dollars now. Yeah, you're just going to be a wealthy exactly. sack, right? <laughs> there you go. Um, so... Any other closing thoughts on this topic, or do we want to go ahead and move into Tweet of the Week, guys? You had some great vocab, both of you, so bravo. Just just well-worded well, well worded responses there, fellas. Thank you. Um, well, we'll go ahead and move into Tweet of the Week. So it selected Isaiah for today, random.org, pulling through. So Isaiah, what do you have for us? Yeah, so I have a quote. So I followed Tim Ferriss on Twitter, as I'm sure a lot of people do. He really is the one that got me into podcasting, but he had Julie Rice on recently, and she said, there's no elevators to success. You have to take the stairs. I love that, because I think sometimes people look at others and say, oh man, look at them, they're, they've done it, and they're an overnight success. And it's like, well, yeah, that overnight success took 10 years. Like You don't see some of the things that they did. And I know when people, I get the question a lot, and I'm sure you all do, like, hey, how's business going? By people that we know, or family, or friends. and it's hard to explain to them exactly what the process of owning a business or starting a business from, you know, pretty much scratch and how that, you know, wears on you, but also the highs and the lows are very different. And I think sometimes even back to the happy money piece, you have to enjoy the journey and not expect it to come like that. And so that's really where I took the quote from. It just kind of hit me with like, that's a really good way to think of it with any endeavor worth doing. It takes time. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I will say that you kind of start on different floors, though, right? Based on your previous experiences or what you were gifted with. Yeah, so Kylie life. Jenner and myself are not on the same floor. I get that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would say she probably started a little higher up the building than you did. Just a tad. <laughs> but there is always, I mean, some amount of hard work that has to be done to create something that matters, right? It's not just like you you go, oh, I would like to have this business that makes X amount of money and does this work for these many great people and you push the button and then it just spits it out. It's like, no, no, no. you're always going to learn some lessons. You're always going to have to do some things you never thought you would, you were going to do and grow out of uh, your previous mode, so to speak. Yeah, it's the iceberg effect. It's easy to see all the success and all the cool stuff and not any of the hard work. I mean, myself, I came from a family of business owners. My you know, my dad owns a commercial flooring business in Detroit and still does it. And my mom's side owned a funeral home. And, and, you know, it's just, it's always easy to kind of see like, here's what all this is, but you don't tend to see all of the really hard work. It sometimes would just be quote easier to go get a job and go do that, show up, hit the money box. Like you're playing super Mario and money comes out, you know, and versus being responsible for all of your own decisions and and both good and bad. So, um, you know, in the name of my firm, Winding, Tri- Winding Trail Financial, that's sort of the whole idea um, is it can look like a straight line, but often when you're looking at 
um, how people get to this successful point. It's usually not a straight line. I mean, there's all those stories of like, you know, I, th- I thought I heard somewhere that like Instagram was had a completely different idea. And as they were scrapping it, the one thing that they kind of kept was just the whole picture piece. And that went on to be what we know it is today. And they, you know, sold it for quite a bit of money to Facebook. But that was like, it was, um, again, I'd have to like look up what it was, but it, that's not where it started. So, or the other things too, where we see these apps or these different businesses, like basically people quote hitting the, like they really, they just hit the lottery. They either got lucky or, um, you know, that stuff does happen, but it's not that often. So yeah, I think that's totally true. Most, most businesses, business owners using that example that I've worked with, uh, have, you know, some pr- pretty good war stories of how they got there. And it was, uh, it's a lot of work. Um, and I just think some people don't really realize that. And I think it's sometimes a bit challenging to really know what that's like. Isaiah, like your point, like you're saying, people kind of ask you, it's like, well, unless you've like run a business or worked in a small business, sometimes you just don't really know what that's like. It's hard to explain to non-business owners what owning a business is because it's a unique emotional journey given that any other thoughts guys or should we go ahead and switch over to our next topic yeah so last topic for the day is going to be one that is certainly mundane sounding but is really important so so don't hit stop listening like let's go through this all the way to the end yeah guys please keep listening and i i just put out a post on linkedin earlier this week really kind of distilling some of my thoughts on it too but Basically, so the Securities and Exchange Commission came out with regulation best interest. And there was an article published by Sam Edwards, who is a advocate. He's an attorney, advocate for individual investors. And basically, his, the title of his article is, It's Disappointing at Best. So Reg B is Disappointing at Best. And it talks about how there's still this dual classification in the industry of someone that is a broker that makes money when they sell something and someone that is an investment advisor that provides investment advice. And the rule that the SEC passed is actually taking more of a step back versus taking a step forward, following along with like the CFP and fee only and some of these other really important topics to where the rule effectively says brokers have the right to act in their client's best interest unless their actual broker, so their firm they work for, says otherwise. So it's so ludicrous when you think about that, how dumb it sounds, but it it is true and it's sad, but there's $8 trillion out there that sit with firms that have vested interest in seeing these type of things stay the way they are. So it's important to understand that. And there's a lot more meat to the article, but that's a, a good jumping off point. Yeah, I mean, the, the easy consumer friendly way to word this is it's almost impossible for you to tell without doing more research who is actually out there to help you and makes money specifically if you do well. And the the unfortunate part about it is that there's no standards out there that say that financial salespeople have to call themselves financial salespeople, whether that's in the insurance industry, the brokerage side, or, you know, financial planners. They can all call themselves financial planners or financial advisors or whatever the standard is at their firm. Or call themselves fiduciaries. I've heard someone that truly could not be called a fiduciary that only sells insurance in a meeting say that. And people at this point understand key buzzwords and they will just say, oh yeah, people will nod their head and agree when I say this. So if I can just say it, there's no one to hold them accountable because it's just them and that client in that meeting. There's no one recording it unless that client would understand or that potential client would then go and say, hey, so-and-so said this and have some sort of proof. 
it's so difficult to police some of this stuff. Yeah, and you, that's spot on too, right? Is even if you're right and they can't call themselves a fiduciary legally or otherwise, I mean, how is anybody, it's not like the SEC or the state sitting in here and on every single meeting um, and it's not written in an email, it's not put in paper. So there's, it's really kind of challenging, but I, I do, I'll play devil's advocate for a little bit. So I think you kind of, have, we have to go back on the history of some of this stuff, you know, back in the day, you know, many years ago, the point one of the points of brokers brokers were to help you know ease transactions we didn't have the internet like we do now where you can just go online and click a button and buy and sell a stock or a mutual fund or etf what have you um you needed you know to some extent you needed these brokers to help make transactions and so that's how they got compensated and obviously you know as you can imagine as things got easier they started moving into more of the advice arena and less so about the market making arena and either one of you guys correct me if I'm wrong on any of this. So that's all well and good, but I think now there that that spillover has caused so much gray that I agree that there's just even more com- confusion. So it would be a lot more helpful to say, look, you know, it's okay, you sell insurance or you sell uh or you help, you know, make the markets and things like that. And that's okay, and insurance is a needed product that's out there, you know, again, maybe not you know, whole life for somebody that's, you know, 22 with no kids or something like that. But some of these are good things, but it's really, you can't really call yourself a fiduciary when you're technically working for an insurance company um, or you're working for a big brokerage house um, because you have actually, you are a fiduciary, you are a fiduciary liable to the company you work for. Um, So I do think that's just a little bit uh, there's just so much gray and there's just so much confusion. So yeah, if they came out with something to say, what do you call yourself and be able to delineate that, that would be so much more helpful um, for consumers rather than, you know, saying everybody's a financial advisor. I mean, advisor. I'm not personally advocating for the abolishment of the positions that these people exactly fill, right? Like, like I, I have nothing against an insurance broker who works really well to find an insurance policy that works well for their clients. That's awesome. But what I do wish is that they weren't also able to call themselves a financial planner and say that they're offering a comprehensive financial plan with that insurance. And by the way, it's not going to cost you. Exactly. Yep. No, that's a good point. Because all that does is it confuses consumers uh, who don't actually have a window into the industry into thinking that, well, this insurance guy is great and he's doing everything. So now my he's told me my budget's fine. He's told me I'm going to be able to retire fine. But that person may not have all of that information or a lot of experience in financial planning to figure out whether all those projections are actually true, even if they did them. I think it stems back to, do you want advice? And if you say yes, how do you find that person? I have my solution and my opinions on on what that looks like. First and foremost, so many people today will talk about, well, we have exclusivity to this certain thing. Um, I came from the wirehouse world, which was a big national brand that advertises, owns by a big bank. And we were told that we had this certain private placement that was exclusive. Come to find out now that I have my own little independent business, right? This small thing, not nearly as big. um, It's only exclusive for a month. I have access to it for 11 other months if I want it. If I had a client that needed it and they had the money and they met the qualifications, I could invest in it just like at the big firm, right? Um, Same with a lot of insurances. It's 2019, about to be 2020. There's no need that you have to make a commission on selling insurance. You can go out and get insurance without having to get paid on the amount of the premium paid. 
That's ludicrous. It's garbage. Anyone that tells you that, well, I need to get paid on this. No, just charge for advice and then go get what people need and don't sell them stuff that's over and above what they need. And so I have six questions that you can ask. First, things first. If you want to go to brokercheck.com or org, can't remember which one, you can go on and see. And if you see a B for broker, there's no point to talk to them. They might be a great person. Just keep moving. And they might be an awesome financial advisor. But for the vast majority of someone to offer advice, you want someone that's fee-only. So you can go to fee-onlynetwork.com, search there. You want someone that's a certified financial planner, that should be table stakes. And then from there, choose and interview those people. Do they have the expertise for your certain situation? Do they fit your personality type? Can they execute on what they're promising? And then decide what your time's worth. What are they charging? What's your time worth? And then make a decision. If you want to do it yourself and still want to do it yourself, that's fine. It is going to cost something for this professional to work with you. And then just figure out what makes sense. And there are really good professionals across the board. There's some, I mean, there's firms in Indianapolis that I know have super high net worth clients that probably charge eighty dollars to $100,000 a year. There are other firms that are work with a lot younger people that don't have to have you know, tons and tons of assets and maybe it's two grand a year. So there's people all over the 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 chasm to kind of fit that still are fee only and are certified financial planners. So if you do those two things, you eliminate 90% of the bad apples. That's not saying they're all great. I'm not saying that. Um, A recent uh, situation has made me realize that, that they're not all great, but you need to at least say those two things are key because if the government's not going to pass regulation to protect you, you need to protect yourself. And by doing that, you're eliminate a lot of the people that are going to take advantage of you. I mean, that's a good point. I think one of the easiest ways to make sure that you're avoiding a lot of that is to make sure that you're paying a fee for advice, because that's still one of the only ways that you can know that the person is actually being your fiduciary. Because under SEC and uh, state regulations, if somebody charges you a fee for advice, and you pay that fee, they are then your fiduciary until the conclusion of that agreement. So that's a pretty good way to put yourself in a place where you know at least that they're trying to act in your best interest. Well, and I I don't know if we talked about it on this podcast, but I know we've talked about it amongst ourselves. But I think, Isaiah, you had some of the statistics out there about, you know, how much money was under management, you know, at some of these big wire houses, brokerage houses, insurance companies and things like that compared to water at all these independent places and it's like you know they're it's like the number one brokerage house has more money you know combined than all of the independent fiduciaries combined or something like that so the point of that is more of where you know where do you think lobbying is going like which which way you know who's making the yeah unfortunately it doesn't really seem to be us right All right. Well, I actually think that's a pretty good uh, place to wrap up, guys. I think we gave everybody an overview of this without hopefully boring them to death. So why don't we all give our closing thoughts? Dwight, why don't we start off with you? What would you like to close on? Yeah. So in closing, going back to the original uh, thought that that Ian had, which was just, hey, you know, money doesn't necessarily equate happiness. So the really the best way to do that again, as we preach on this show quite a bit is, you know, figure out a plan, come up with what is going to make sense for you, what's going to make you happy and benchmark to that. Um, and, and just understand that amassing my, you know, piles and piles of cash is probably not going to be the, the most advantageous thing to do. So, you know, come up with a plan and benchmark to yourself. Unless you're born 
into a family with a lot of wealth. You're not taking the elevator. You're taking the stairs. If you're going to ever develop anything and do it yourself, there's nothing wrong with being a W2 employee and, and chasing other dreams. But if you're going to run a business, it's going to be difficult and you are going to take the stairs. Yeah. And I think I'll close on one more thought from our closing argument here, which is, you know, look for somebody that you can identify is a fiduciary and is acting in your best interest. And to Isaiah's points earlier, an easy way to do that is just to look for a fee-only CFP. That's a pretty good place to start. Thanks so much for listening. We hope we were able to make you laugh and allow you to learn something. For all inquiries and questions, please email financialforesight at gmail.com. If you're on Twitter, feel free to give us a follow and ask a question there as well. Remember the podcast is for general information and entertainment purposes only, and you should not consider what we've talked about investment or tax advice. Please consult your professional team before implementing anything we talked about. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and maybe leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. And thank you so much for listening. We'll be talking again soon.